I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Nick, either you spark a lot of conversation or you're really confusing because <laughs> we've been getting a lot of calls from uh, listeners uh, asking questions. Yeah. Awesome. And they're calling on our fabulous number, <laughs> which is 731-388-9334. Hey, good day. Uh, my name is Dale Scriven. I live in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., in particular up in Marlboro. And my question is around rent control. Um, being in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., we are definitely privy to the challenges of the nation's capital in regards to um, affordable housing, et cetera, and the magic word gentrification is, uh, you know, a, a commonplace in conversation when it comes to housing. I want to know what your what your thoughts are on rent control. Now, D.C. doesn't necessarily have rent control, but I did hear a, um, another podcast that talked about it. And I'm wondering, is rent control simply a symptom of people not being paid enough, or is it something that should be involved, or I should say, um, kind of infused in our policies as we approach um, you know, the hardships of, of, of affordable living um, in the United States of America? Um, thanks a lot. Love the podcast. Have a great day. So Dale from D.C., uh, it's a really interesting question about rent control and right. the role that that can play in addressing what has become a national crisis around housing. Right. In cities across America, and there are a couple cities like New York and uh, I guess San Francisco that have done rent control, and it is great for the small number of people who actually have rent control apartments. Yeah. But, you know, there's always been a problem mixing markets, the market with government-imposed price controls. Yeah. Uh, it, it's always difficult. It never works out well. But, you know, there's actually a different kind of rent control. That's right. And that would be publicly owned housing. That's right. In which the government, the public, gets to set the rent and gets to choose how much money it needs to make off of these these apartments. Yeah, but let's back up a, a step and just, I think, elaborating on why we have such a housing right. crisis in America in virtually every big city that there is. The first problem is urbanization. So right. the way in which our economy has evolved has made it essentially uh, impossible to participate unless you live in cities, which means that the cities are all growing very, very quickly. And that creates a lot of pressure on the housing stock. And to be clear, even if policies were perfect, it takes a long time to build housing, right. right? It takes one day to move to a city. It takes three years to build a place for somebody. And so that's a hard problem. The second problem, of course, is 40 years of trickle-down economics, which has suppressed wages for most Americans while making a few of us insanely rich and our incomes get to drive the prices, right? So if you have a bunch of people with essentially infinite capacity to spend, we bid up the price of housing and everyone else is left behind. And then the third, you know, the third problem, of course, is that people, uh, the nimbyism, right? The fact that the urban cores of these cities uh, in many places like Seattle and San Francisco are these single family neighborhoods and no one wants density in those neighborhoods. And that makes it extremely hard to house all the people who need to be there to go to work in the in the cores of these cities. Right, right. It's one of the ironies of a progressive city like Seattle, in which, you know, homeowners like me, it's actually not in our interest 
to get this affordable housing crisis under control because as long as there's an affordable housing crisis, the value of my yes. house keeps going exactly. up and up and exactly. up and up. And we're the ones making most of the political decisions. That's right. I think when you look at it, we need to be realistic that there's an affordable housing crisis, not just for low income families, but for middle income families yeah. in the United States. And these are in some ways separate issues. On the low end, low income, let's be clear, the market has never served low-income families outside of slums and tenements. And we made a decision starting about 75 years ago that this was unacceptable for Americans to live in those conditions. We used to have it. Our cities were filled with slums and tenements. And so starting in the 1930s and 1940s and a lot in the 50s, massive investments in public housing. And then at some point, we stopped. Yeah. But to be fair, a lot of that public housing was terrible right. and concentrated poverty. It was concentrated right. poverty. Yeah. What what we can do and what I think increasingly we realize we need to do is we need to have a public option for housing. Yeah. This is not, you know, skyscrapers for poor people. This is housing aimed at the middle, and you can subsidize lower-income right. families into it. But if you look at a city like Seattle, this broader region, you know, we could build two, 300,000 units, and that's what it would take to start getting prices down to where uh, people could afford to live in the city again. It can't happen quickly. That's the, right. that's it's the going great to take, challenge. It's going to take decades yeah. to do that because yeah. it just takes a long time and, to build you know, housing stock. Here at Civic Ventures, we have become fans of what's called the the Vienna approach, which is right. what they did is they built beautiful public housing for middle class people. And they gave those families essentially a perpetual right to stay in these units, to will them to their children. And because the public owns them, the public uh, never increases the rent by more than it costs to maintain the buildings, not at the market not rate. Not at the market rate. So what you end up, if you do this over decades, you end up with a huge stock of really high quality housing in great locations that essentially becomes the way in which p families can live. And rather than build wealth by becoming house poor, essentially, and riding the appreciation balloon up, you have essentially a fixed cost for your rent, which is quite cheap, and then you can use the excess income that you have to invest in other things right. to build wealth. Sadly, you can't do this in a day. It takes a long time to do this, but we think that that approach needs to be part of the mix in which of how we sort of as a nation begin to address this housing crisis. Yeah. So, so I guess in a sense, we're very for rent control, but rent control of publicly owned housing because long term yeah. in the market that'll never address the larger problem yep but thank you for your question hey nick and company this is warren from toronto canada a uh, question about capitalism and climate change uh, with growth of even three percent a year in just over 20 years we wind up doubling the size of the global economy and the planet seems currently unable to sustain that level of growth is there a model of capitalism that provides decent incomes for people without requiring growth. Uh, you know, growth has always been indicated as one of the synchronons of, uh, of capitalism. Is there a way of achieving uh, effective capitalism that achieves uh, the goal of solving problems without ramping up growth that destroys the planet? Thanks so much for all you do. Really enjoy the podcast. Uh, the first answer to Warren is uh, no. There is no way to do capitalism without growth. But the second part is, is there a kind of growth that doesn't destroy the planet? 
Those Canadians always ask the best questions, don't they? <laughs> Those darn Canadians. So here's, I think, what our view is. The word growth uh, is a big word. It means a lot of things to a lot of people, but it presently is defined as increases in GDP, which presently defined as output. And uh, we believe strongly that the one of the first big and important steps in essentially reforming how we think about economics is to change our definition of growth from output to outcomes. So move from how much stuff we make to how we improve the material circumstances of people. And what we call that is solutions to human problems. And once you think about it in that way, there are all sorts of ways for us to dematerialize the economy while simultaneously improving people's lives. I think one of the most unrelenting features of humanity is the continual desire to improve our circumstances. And we have to find a way to do that for people without simultaneously incinerating the, the right. planet. And I think here's a great practical example of that. Moving from incandescent bulbs to LED bulbs is growth. Right. Yet you're using a hell of a lot yeah, less electricity yeah. for the same amount of Correct. light. On an early podcast of ours, the physicist Cesar Hidalgo made the point that human knowledge and know-how is the only factor of production that can increase in per capita terms. And so if you think about it that way, rather than growth coming from consuming more and more natural resources, it can consume more and more knowledge and know-how. Correct. And knowledge and know-how is both infinite and ethereal. It, yes. it doesn't embody any matter or energy per se. That's right. And so we have, of course, an enormous challenge and an existential, really an existential challenge to find a way to continue to improve the circumstances of people on planet Earth, particularly the least fortunate, without incinerating the planet in, in the meantime. But I do think that by very programmatically making the bad things a lot more expensive, like consuming fossil fuels, and the good things less expensive, like services or experiences. Right. Uh, good theater versus bad theater yeah. is gross. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, uh, right. a, a good hamburger, well, a good veggie burger <laughs> versus a bad veggie burger. Look, the great new veggie burgers that yeah. are coming on right. the market. Yeah. That's growth. Yeah. And, you know, doing a Skype for free... Uh, versus having to get on an airplane to go meet with somebody face to face, that's also economic growth, right. despite the fact that one thing is free and the other thing uh, costs a lot of money. So to sum up, Warren, you know, capitalism, yeah, in some form or another, that's based on growth. But I, I think, Nick, you agree that we can dematerialize growth and continue to get all the benefits from it. Yeah, I do. We love to answer questions from all over the world, even Canada. So if you've got a question for Nick and the crew at Pitchfork Economics, please give us a call at 731-388-9334 and leave a message. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week. 